All right, just open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1. And we'll read verse 18 to the end of the chapter. All right, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us that are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring nothing to the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to, those, to, to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Morning. Good morning. Opening a word of prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we're so thankful um, to be able to meet here for another Lord's Day. Father, we're thankful that Terry has some time out um, to get away with the family, Lindy and the boys. We just think of them now, um, that you'll be with them and uh, keep them safe and bring them back to us safely. Father, we think of those as well who can't be with us, who would otherwise be here, and we just ask that you would be with them today as well. And uh, Lord, for our time this morning here together as, as a big family of families, we just ask that you would help us to check uh, whatever's going on at the door to come here to set our hearts, affection and minds attention to the word that you have for us this morning that you may get the glory out of our lives and that we may enjoy and know the joy that it is to follow you. I pray this in your name, Father. Amen. Uh, well, we're obviously having a break from the Gospel of Luke this morning that Terry's been tracking us through for a while now. Um, and we're going to be flipping over, as John read, to 1 Corinthians. We'll be looking at this idea of the foolishness of the cross. So today will be a little bit, um, I guess, apologetic, a bit of a apologetics, uh, a defence for the faith, if you will. So we're going to kind of have a look at this idea of the way many people in society think of the message of Christianity. Um, by way of background, Corinth was a Roman colony, uh, and it was it was a really uh, it was a port city on the Mediterranean, and it was really a, an urban, cosmopolitan place, given the trade routes that went through 
Uh, it was very happening, if you will. Um, and back in those days, even by pagan standards, Corinth was known to be a place that was debaucherous and depraved. The, the, the name actually became synonymous with, um, with these two things of debauchery and depravity. And there was this saying back, there, back then um, that if you were to Corinthianize, then it was as if you were um, reveling in debauchery or whatever. So it was actually a, the very name was associated with that idea of immorality. Paul planted his church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. And, uh, and it's no wonder then that he's writing back to the Corinthians who are living in this cosmopolitan, hip, urban, liberal city, um, this, this two letters that are just filled with uh, um, uh, advice on how to live the Christian life given the context that they were living in. And for those of you who have read 1 and 2 Corinthians, you, you're familiar with some of the things that he talks about to them. He talks about lawsuits, he talks about marriage, he talks about sex, he talks about um, all sorts of immorality, he talks about... Um, a big thing he talks about is idolatry. But the first thing that he kind of addresses with them is what we're going to look at today, and that is this idea of God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. And again, it's no surprise when you look at the history of Corinth and you realise the pantheistic culture that they lived in with all of these competing philosophies and ideologies and religions that were on back in the day. So it's as if Paul takes the bull by the horns in this first chapter and, and into the second chapter and, and addresses this idea of man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. Uh, John read it out for us this morning and we're going to just walk through verse by verse uh, 18 to 31. I have split it up into five sections if it helps those taking notes, although I was thinking um, there probably comes a point where an outline doesn't help because I've got five points here, but we'll wait and see. Um, The first section would be the perishing's perspective of the cross, verse 18. The second section is the philosopher and the cross, 19 to 20. The third section is the power of the cross, 21 to 25. The fourth section is the paradox of the cross, 26 to 29. And finally, the promise of the cross, 30 to 31. So first of all, the perishing's perspective of the cross, verse 18. Looking at that, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Now, this is from the NKJV that I'm teaching from. The the word for uh, message there in the NKJV, it's translated logos or word. And in ancient Greek philosophy, the concept of the logos carried many different meanings depending on which philosophical school you were talking to. Uh, But in general, it related to this idea of this total embodiment of truth. Now, remember how the Apostle John started his uh, gospel? He said it with these words, In the beginning was the Word, or the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Likewise, in 1 John 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the Word of life. John takes this Greco-Roman idea of the Logos and he applies it straight to Jesus. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's been relevant to the Greco-Roman culture that he's writing to. So he's, he's using their own terminology, their own Greek philosophical phrases to, to try and explain to them 
um, your philosophies that you're pursuing after, I'm talking about Jesus and he's the one that fulfills what you're trying to find through this idea of truth and the total embodiment of truth. So Paul is just being familiar and being relevant to his Corinthian audience. So basically we could rephrase that first verse, dare I do that, um, the whole embodiment of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross is foolishness. That's what Paul is saying there to those who are perishing. So he's been culturally relevant. And you see from Acts chapter 17, um, which is the, the narrative that goes along with um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we read about his confrontation uh, in Athens that he had with the philosophers at the Areopagus. And you realise there that um, when he makes this massive philosophical case for the, the resurrection of Christ uh, and the gospel, as he comes back down to Corinth, he, he couldn't rid himself of the, um, the many philosophies and ideologies. They traced all the way down through Greece with him, and so he's still got this maelstrom of competing philosophies and ideologies that he's having to deal with now in Corinth. And it's really like today when you stop and think about it. I mean, as you look around us today, we have many competing ideologies, religions, philosophies of life, and even political um, approaches to politics. I mean, we have capitalism, communism, socialism, and democracy. We have liberals, labors, greens, and the shooters and fishers party. We have naturalism, rationalism, atheism, and of course, Christianity, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and don't forget Scientology. Now, if you don't know exactly what all of those uh, ideologies represent, that's okay because the Bible makes it real clear when you reduce it all down, there's really only two. There's truth and there's non-truth. On the side of truth, the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, which means any ideology or philosophy that is contrary to Christ is not the way, the truth, and, of course, does not lead to life. There is no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved. Now, that just assaults our 21st century pluralistic sensibilities, doesn't it? I mean, that's just way too exclusive. Christianity is an exclusive religion in an inclusive age. But listen, truth by its very definition is exclusive. If you say Allah is God, you're being exclusive. If you say Krishna is God, you are being exclusive. Even if you say there is no God, you're still being exclusive. Even if you say that you cannot know if there's a God or not, you are still being exclusive. So this charge of Christianity being exclusive really isn't the point. It's just a distraction because it doesn't do anything to discredit the faith because it's not a matter of being inclusive or exclusive. It's a matter of what's true and what's not true. And when you actually look at the question of truth, you come to realise that Christianity is inclusive when you look at the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ and his redemption held out for all of mankind. So Paul begins his argument here in 1 Corinthians by pitting man's wisdom against God's wisdom, the broad way against the narrow way, and from the perspective of those who are perishing, who do not believe in Christ the gospel appears, the narrow way appears as foolish. Now, Paul wrote that to the Corinthians over 2,000 years ago. 
let me read you something from 2006. Many of you are familiar with Richard Dawkins, biologist, popular atheist. He wrote in The God Delusion, I have described the atonement as vicious, sadomasochistic and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad for its unambiguous familiarity which has dulled our objectivity. Likewise, in 2006, neuroscientist and atheist Sam Harris wrote in his book, Letter to a Christian Nation, Christianity amounts to the claim that we must love and be loved by a God who approves of the scapegoating, torture and murder of a man, his son, incidentally, in compensation for the misbehaviour and thought crimes of others. Now, I'm not going to spend time addressing those particular issues this morning, but I just want you to simply see that not much has changed over the past 2,000 years. People back then, as well as today, still look at the cross of Jesus Christ and its message and think of it as foolish. The message of Jesus Christ is foolishness to the perishing, and that's why we shouldn't be surprised why Newcastle isn't pouring in here after their runs on a Sunday morning into this temple of foolishness. We should not be surprised that indifference has grown to the point of ignorance concerning Jesus. Leading up to Easter, my wife, Julie, working in the hospital, she was chatting with her friends about the Easter break. Obviously, they're having time off, and then the, the subject came up, what is Easter all about? Um, and the girls that she worked with couldn't answer the question. They said, Jesus, I, I don't know, something about him. They didn't even know the basics of the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is amazing for Western civilization, which has largely been conditioned with a Christian foundation. It's a tragedy today that so many people are recipients of the gracious gift of life and yet are so entirely ignorant of the life giver. And I wonder, do we grieve enough for the lost as a church? If we take seriously this passage, that there are those perishing around us in this city, why aren't we grieved more? Why aren't we frustrated more? We can become so comfortable in our Christianity. It's easy to be thankful that we have a good church and that we have a great Pastor Terry, who who's faithfully exposes the word every week for us. It's easy to be comfortable in this church. It's easy to put money in the box and trust that the church will, will choose to use it wisely and advance missions across the world. It's easy to slide in and out of this sort of consumeristic Christianity where we come to church and try and look at what the church can offer me and to completely forget the final commission that Jesus said to his disciples before he left, going, go out there and spread this message to all the nations. In 1879, British criminal Charles Peace, he was a notorious criminal, he um, burgled places, he murdered a few blokes, he, he was not a good guy, but when he was being escorted to the gallows, uh, there's this chaplain walking along with him, reading, a, reading aloud about heaven and hell, and as this guy was reading about hell, Peace burst out, excuse me Mr Chaplain, where are you reading from? The chaplain said, the Bible. He says, do you believe it? The chaplain said, yes. You really believe it? The chaplain said, 
Yes, of course. Peace replied, Mr. Chaplin, sir, if I believe what you and many Christians claim to believe, even one-tenth of what you claim to believe about hell, I would crawl across England on my hands and knees, even if it were to be littered with glass pieces, and I would count it worth my while to save one soul from that hell, sir, that you so glibly speak about. From a guy who didn't believe. Are we restless for the lost? Are we uncomfortable for the lost? Do we lose sleep for those who we know in our lives, in our workplaces, in our families, who are on the Broadway to hell? Never rest, even if it drives you to an early grave. Don't rest while there's daylight and work to be done. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him on whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good news. That's our job. That's where the tool that God uses in this age in which we live, this dispensation of grace. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But look at this. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here is a great contrast and a great irony. The very thing that looks so foolish, that makes no sense to the carnal mind, is actually actually the ultimate source of transforming power. Did you see that there? Christians aren't just saved. You know, we're not just captured for that final day of glorification when we'll rid ourselves of this body. We are being saved. It's a process. It's called sanctification. Whereby we groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Praise God that in his supposed foolishness, he has the power to radically transform lives, to radically change every element of the thinking mind, to radically transform the whole motive of a person for living, to radically change your sense of identity, meaning and purpose in life. That's the transforming power of the gospel. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone Behold, he makes all things new. Now to verse 19, 20, the philosopher in the cross. Paul writes, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Let's just consider this verse for the moment. There's a myriad of reasons why people might reject Christianity today. I mean, we looked at Dawkins and um, Harris, and obviously they were arguing from a moral point of view. But there's many other reasons. People, for people, it might be the Bible, it might be creation, it might be miracles, it might be the idea of the virgin birth, it might be the idea of sin or forgiveness, immortality, just the whole idea of the supernatural in general, on and on and on. There are numerous examples for why people might re- reject Christianity and so see the cross as foolish. But irrespective of all those reasons why someone might reject, Paul seems to sum it up here in verse 19. You see, he's paraphrasing Isaiah chapter 29. And by drawing on the Old Testament, I think it's as if Paul is saying that this idea of the gospel coming across as foolishness, it's been God's plan all along. It's been God's plan all along that this message of salvation from the beginning of time, when it came to the fruition at the first advent of Christ, it's not like God stepped back and went, 
oh my, I didn't think that they would take it this way. God is not surprised that the message appears foolish to people because it's been his plan all along. It's been God's intention of doing what he's always intended on doing. Now, what does that mean? Okay, let's look at it. This is a, in the context of Isaiah 29, this cross-reference that we have here. Isaiah, Israel was split into two um, sections. You had the northern section up north, the ten tribes. Israel was made up of 12 tribes. You had the northern section, which is the ten tribes, and down south you had the two which was the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, which adopted the name Judah because Judah was the larger tribe. Assyria had all but captured the northern uh, ten tribes, and so now King Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians, set his, his sights onto Judah down south. So God promised the prophet Isaiah these words, I will again do a marvellous work among this people, a marvellous work and a wonder, For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. I will do this wonder, God says. So God was the redemptive force behind uh, the oppression that Judah was to experience. And, And he told Isaiah that so that they could just trust and obey. And if you read on there, you see how King Sennacherib marches his army all the way down to the gates of Jerusalem with King Hezekiah and Isaiah hiding inside the walls. And um, you know what, let's read it. If you flick over to Isaiah, (coughs) Isaiah chapter 37. And we're looking at verses 36 to 38. This is too good just just to tell you. Isaiah 37, 36 to 38. So the armies have come down. King Sennacherib has sent down his boys. They're outside the gates. They're hurling this abuse and they're trying to intimidate. They're sieging Jerusalem. And this is the way God comes through with his promise to redeem Judah. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshipping in the house of Nishrok, his god, that Adramelech and Sharazer, his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Arat. Then Ashardadon, his son, became king in his place. That's what a single angel is capable of. 185,000 people gone. Jewish tradition uh, maintains that it was the, uh, the angel... Gabriel, and that it was the Passover, which is fitting when you think about Exodus. But that's just Jewish tradition, not the word of God. But intriguing nonetheless. So God told Israel that he would fight for her, and all they had to do was trust and obey. But again, back to our 21st century, that just grates against our drive for self-dependence, doesn't it? We are all inclined to save our own selves, to fight our own fights and to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I've said it before and pretty much in every sermon, I think, but I'll say it again. Every single other worldview aside from Christianity teaches some form of works righteousness. They all strive through their religiosity to obtain salvation. But when you ask anyone who isn't a Christian, how much is enough? What's the answer you're going to get? 
a little bit more, always a little bit more. There is a way that seems right to man, Solomon wrote, but its end is the way of death. Humanity needs to learn just when to get out of the way and let God do his thing. And Christianity stands unique in this myriad of competing philosophies and ideologies, religions and political agendas today because its message is on the foundation of Christ formed on the pillars of God-given grace. It's God's work, not your work. That's why it works. You see, God's destroying the wisdom of the wise and frustrating the understanding of the prudent. It's all bound up in the Bible's view of sin. Sin isn't just being naughty or disobeying God. At its core, sin is fundamental idolatry. It's putting yourself, your wants, your needs before God. I was at Easter convention the other week and I had the privilege of listening to Paul David Tripp speak about marriage and in that workshop he said the DNA of sin is selfishness. The chemical composition of sin is selfishness, which means sin is antisocial in its fundamental form. And when you look across redemptive history, is this not what we see? You start with Adam and Eve in the garden, they take that fruit, God catches up with them and confronts them about it, and they start blaming each other. And then move one generation later and you have sibling homicide between Cain and Abel. One generation again, or a couple of generations later, you have Lamech and his immorality. Then you have the evilness of the people in Noah's day. Then you have Babel. You have Abraham and Sarah's impatience. You have Joseph's murderous brothers. You have David's idolatry. You have his self-serving son Solomon right after that. On and on and on. Again, as we look across redemptive history, we see example after example of sin. And at every juncture, there is a common trend. And it is the, the fundamental idolatry of self that goes along with sin. Pick up Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller and he'll elaborate on that for you. Is it any wonder, therefore, why God told Moses to write down first, you shall have no other gods before me? Because if you could get that one right, you wouldn't need the whole rest. But God in his mercy has broken it down for us a little bit. So the issue for God then, if he's going to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15, this redemptive promise, and reconcile rebels to himself, then it has to be done in such a way that the message won't be bound up in human self-interest. It has to be a way so radical, so out there, that mankind can't look at himself and go, look at me, pat himself on the back, I worked out my way back to God. Far be it from God to only provide a way of salvation that only inflames our sense of self-idolatry. So when Paul draws in the Old Testament here, it's as if he's saying God from the get-go decided in his wisdom that he would destroy the wisdom of the wise and frustrate the intelligence of the prudent so that no one can boast in their salvation. The message of Christ crucified utterly decimates human wisdom at that point. The wisest man to ever lived, Solomon, interesting guy, isn't he? The wisest guy to ever live, of course, aside from Jesus. But he still had some big issues that he dealt with. The wisest man who ever lived wrote this. Wisdom, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Wisdom never brought Solomon anything other than the realisation that he didn't have anything apart from God. He wised up, excuse the pun, to the reality that human wisdom, 
apart from God, is just vanity. He went on to write, I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given the sons of man by which they must be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity, a grasping after the wind. So Paul continues, verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? That's the Jew. Where is the disputer of this age? That's the Gentile. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Paul is arguing against the philosophers and scholars of their day who used the mind that God gave them to deny the very God who made them. He's basically saying, which school of philosophy has figured out my plan of salvation? What human effort has worked out how to find me? Is it scholarship? Is it philosophy? Science? Over the past 12 months, I've been um, picking my way through Frederick Copleston, the Jesuit priest's history of Western philosophy. And before you ask if I've got a life... um, In fact, I think it was Ravi Zacharias who said that philosophy is to the student's mind what spinach is to a child's taste buds. (laughs) It's uh, it's a burden to be endured, but nevertheless of some value. Anyway, when you condense it all down, you see that throughout every age of history, at least in the West, there have been major philosophical movements and each have suggested or proposed one way to view all of ultimate reality, purpose and meaning. You start off with um, 700 years before Jesus, around Daniel's day actually, you have the Greeks guys starting to come in, proposing that everything is united with fire. Another guy comes along and everything is united with water. Another guy comes along and says actually it's air. And then you, you go through Socrates and Aristotle and have this explosion of philosophical thought. And then if we just look at it from the Renaissance onwards in the 14th century, the Renaissance um, tried to view everything through the creative arts and culture. And then on the heels of the Renaissance in the 14th century, in the 16th and 17th centuries after, uh, you see the Age of Enlightenment coming forth, which tried to define reality through um, rationalism, reasoning and intellect. And certainly we can see the um, byproduct of that today. And in reaction to rationalism, you have what is called empiricism in the 18th century, which said reality and meaning are all ultimately discovered through personal experience, not through rationalism. And then in the late 18th and 19th century, you have what's called existentialism, which defined reality and meaning through exercising of the human freedom, the the pursuit of doing what you wanted at the expense of everyone else. All of these movements inevitably led to what is called postmodernism today in the 20th and 21st century, which basically rejects all of the previous isms that no one can really know truth or purpose or meaning. All is relative. Truth is in the eye of the beholder. What's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. These are all postmodern sayings in the day and age in which we live. Now, can't you see how each of these philosophies, competing philosophies, are just attitudes of the day. 
Some linger around, some longer than others, but sooner or later mankind becomes dissatisfied with the philosophy of their day and starts developing something else to try and plug the gaps in the previous philosophy. Rationalism, empiricism, existentialism, postmodernism, they're all temporal attitudes. They come and they go. There's this old saying that you never wed yourself to the spirit of the age because you'll be a widow in one generation. And isn't it tragic that so many people today in our culture have bought the lie of this temporal postmodern attitude that says you can't know truth, therefore I reject Christianity. People have been lost because they're, they're deluded from the temporal attitude of the age in which we live. For all of eternity, people have been lost. In contrast, God brings every ideology to naught in the gospel that transcends all of that, transcends age, culture, and everything. That's why Paul sarcastically asks, where is the philosopher of this age? Where is the human being that has answered mankind's greatest need? Because all of your little philosophies are always developing, redeveloping, and redeveloping because they can't plug the main issue that is sin. It was German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, some of you may be familiar with, in the late 1800s, who famously declared or coined that phrase, God is dead. This is what he, this is what he wrote. God is dead, he cried. I shall tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We are his murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not perpetually falling backwards, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as though through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not more and more night coming on all the time? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell anything of God's decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. Back in the 60s, somebody wrote on the side of a building, God is dead, signed Nietzsche. A couple of days later, another guy comes along and writes, God is dead. Uh, Nietzsche is dead, God. But for all of his faults, Nietzsche was honest with himself. Because when you kill off the very notion of God, you have no point of reference with which to live. Who has wiped away the horizon, that point of reference? Who has wiped that away? There is no telling which way is up or down. Are we not strained in an infinite nothingness? When humanity rids itself of God... It is free to make himself God in the process and create his own meaning and purpose of life and tick the DNA box of sin, which is selfishness. Nietzsche went on to predict that this kind of postmodern philosophy would inevitably lead to the bloodiest century in human history, and he was right. Rudolf Rummel, in his book Lethal Politics, shows that more people... listen. More people were killed in the 20th century than the first 19 put together. It was the bloodiest century in human history, right after the death of God movement. When you kill off God in the marketplace of ideas, 
Chaos ensues because there is no moral point of reference with which to live. That's why you lock your doors at night. That's why we have police. That's why we have legal systems adjudicating between people. Because the moment morality becomes totally subjectified is the moment chaos ensues. It is unlivable. And that's the philosophical age that you and I live in. It's been, it's been around for a long time because these movements come and go. But that's the age that we live in today. And the postmodern landscape of our culture is marching us every day towards moral bankruptcy. Christian values have been eroded from the ground up in the marketplace right through to politics. Look at the discussions they're having today. Moral discussions. Our government is having as mankind pursues the glorification of self at the expense of the glorification of God. Sure, human wisdom can at times see the immediate cause of a problem, but it cannot see the root, which is sin. It may see that selfishness is a cause of inju- it may see that selfishness is a cause of injustice, but it has no way to remove the selfishness. It may see that hatred causes misery and pain and destruction, but it has no cure for the hatred. It may see that humans don't get along with each other, but it does not see that the real cause of that is that humans don't get along with God. Human wisdom cannot see because it will not see. It's perhaps the greatest irony that as long as human wisdom looks on God's wisdom as foolishness, its own wisdom will always remain foolish. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in his bloodied cross and his glorious resurrection, in the Easter message that we celebrate today, do we find ultimate reality, meaning and purpose for life. That's why the apostle said to the Corinthians, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you know what, it's, it's probably one of the greatest things about the gospel is that you don't need to have a brilliant, abstract, philosophical mind to understand it. You just need to hear it. I'm going to get too Southern Baptist on you, but amen. amen. The Bible talks about having faith like a child, and it's one of those amazing things about this message Unlike all other man-made competing philosophies and ideologies that, um, that are out there today, the gospel is accessible to everyone. It transcends age. It doesn't matter if you're 9 or 90. It transcends culture. It doesn't matter if you're Mexican or Madagascan. It transcends race. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It transcends social class. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. And, and isn't that what we experience here every Sunday as we get together as a body of believers, we're just all eclectic people coming here under the banner of salvation, worshipping our God. Different people, different amounts of money in our pockets, different ages, and we all have a common faith as equal brothers and sisters. There is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's not an elimination of distinctives. Of course, there's males and females and slaves and free and Jews and Greeks. It's elimination of inequalities. We're all flatlined because we all require salvation through Jesus Christ. Has anyone here watched that movie Prometheus? It's like the prequel to Alien came out a couple of years ago. Ridley Scott's classic Alien. Um, It's a sci-fi film and the basic plot line, if you haven't watched it, you probably won't watch it, so I'll tell you. Um, (laughs) 
it's mankind's trying to find their creators uh, who are some extraterrestrial beings in outer space. And how they go about finding their creators is through a whole lot of research, scientific discovery, archaeological digging, technological developments, and space travel, of course. So basically mankind uses their skills to reach up out of their system to try and find their creators, or God, if you will. And as I was watching this, I was just reminded of the Tower of Babel. What happened in Babel? They started building this big tower in an attempt to reach up to God. But what did God do? He came down and he messed up their language so they couldn't finish building the tower. Why? Because God will not allow himself to be found through the pursuit of mankind's fallen abilities. Whether it's Babel, Darwinian evolution that tries to posit a theory of everything, or any of these competing philosophies throughout the ages because it's precisely that issue of self-ability that leads to self-glorification which results in self-idolatry and self-worship which brings us full circle all the way back to the very heart of sin. Listen, a God discovered by human abilities and human wisdom, first of all, he could not be a God because the finite cannot reason the infinite. infinite. What Tommy Nelson said that if you have a birthday... Don't try and reason the idea of God. So often I hear people box God in and talk about God as though he were just another fallen human being. Enough already. God is God and his ways aren't our ways and his ways don't always make sense. Yes, he's all powerful, but yes, bad things happen. Yes, he's one, but yes, he's three. But that's okay if we can't explain that because he's God. We don't need to box him into our human minds and try and reason him to everyone. Let it be that he is supreme above us. That's okay. But secondly, and more to the point, he would be both a projection of our human sinfulness and human pride, and that would constitute worship of the creature rather than the creator, and we're back at Eden all over again, picking that fruit to grasp equality with God. So it's within this framework that Paul rhetorically asks this question, verse 20b, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? By not allowing himself to be found by human efforts, by any philosophical pursuits or scientific endeavours, God has effectively exposed the folly of human wisdom by coming and saving humanity with a means and a way that is totally outside of anything mankind could have conceived of. A bloody, humiliating wooden cross and a dead God nailed on it. It's been said the Bible isn't a book you would write if you could and it isn't a book you could write if you would. Because it's so contrary to human nature. Classic defence, by the way, when you're talking to your friends about Christianity. The wisdom of God is so contrary to human wisdom, but that's precisely why it is so effective. By offering humanity such a profoundly simple salvation in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The simplicity of the gospel gives what the complexity of human wisdom promises but never delivers. Now, a clarification on this point. 
Paul isn't saying that he's opposed to philosophy, scholarship or science or anything like that. Paul was one of the most academic men of his day, if not the most academic. And in chapter 15 of this very book, you'll see him make a massive philosophical case for the resurrection. So he's not talking about being anti-intellectual or anything like that. Christianity should never be reduced down to leave the mind untouched. And if you have people telling you that Christianity is a very anti-intellectual religion, just point them to the Bible because it's not what it says. And clearly they're ignorant of that fact. God exhorts us to love him with all our heart, soul, strength and mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So all Paul's saying here is that if your philosophy and your scholarship and your study, whatever it is, if it's done correctly, it should lead you to Jesus, not away from him. Thirdly this morning, the power of the cross, 21 to 25. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men." Have you guys picked up on the point Paul's trying to be make, tried to make this whole time? With all its supposed wisdom, humanity has never been able to know, much less come to a personal relationship with God. The increase in our knowledge and abilities as a, as a species only increases our ability to sin and so distance ourselves from God. Listen to this really neat little poem a satirical poem by uh, Arthur Gitterman called Our New Religion. First dentistry was painless, then bicycles were chainless, carriages were horseless and many laws enforceless. Next, next cookery was fireless, teleography was wireless, cigars were nicotineless and coffee caffeineless. Soon oranges were seedless, the pudding green was weedless, the college boy was hatless, the proper diet fatless. New motor roads are dustless, the latest steel is rustless, our tennis courts are sodless, our new religion godless it's a striking admission isn't it as mankind's dependence on its own wisdom increases so too does its problems and this is all a part of god's plan he would not allow humanity to be found by its through their own wisdom lest he give mankind another reason to boast as we've already talked about So instead, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached of the Logos to save those who believe. The foolishness of the cross is man's only hope because it's only there that humanity's greatest need is found, the forgiveness of sins. Now, Paul divides those who are perishing into two groups, to the Jews and to the Greeks or the Gentiles. And both people groups had their issues with the crucifixion. Looking at the dupe first. They were looking for signs and wonders. Now, it needs to be stated up front that whenever, one, whenever somebody desires proof of something, more often than not, that's an evasion, not actually an excuse for, for believing. Remember the rich man there in Lazarus, Luke 16, uh, the rich man in Lazarus that uh, Terry talked to us a couple of weeks ago, where you have the rich man in Hades saying, let me go back and... Tell my brothers all about you so that they'll believe. And Abraham says, uh-uh, 
they have the law and the prophets and they won't believe. If they haven't listened to the law and the prophets, they won't believe with a dead man coming back to life. So keep that in mind next time somebody says to you, I'd believe in your Jesus if only he proved himself or gave me enough evidence. For the Jew as well, in the first century there was this longing to be free. Because of course in their history they had been attacked by numerous powers, often humiliated by occupying forces. Whether it was the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans, Jerusalem had been repeatedly plundered and the people left homeless There was this longing, therefore, for their promised Messiah to come and emancipate them from the oppression and restore the fortunes of the dispersed Israel as promised to Abraham. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, you'll notice that the majority of places he goes, there's always this group of of Jewish high priests watching him, waiting to see what he'll do to prove himself as the promised Messiah. It's like Jesus was going under this three-year job interview where they were measuring him up against his messianic job description, so to speak. But as, of, of course, when his life didn't look like anything they expected, they took him out and they had him crucified. And the fact that they could kill him actually confirmed to them the idea that, wow, this guy totally could not have been God because we just killed him. In fact, to them, the whole idea of Christ crucified was an oxymoron. Two competing ideas in the one sentence. We preach Christ crucified. That's like saying we preach cold fire or something like that. It's, it's just two opposite ideas. In the, maybe that's a bad example. I've had people say to me, um, this is bad actually, it's a dad joke, but how do you call yourself a civil engineer, David? Okay, all right. Engineers aren't civil people. Okay, um... So to the Jewish mind, it was this idea of an oxymoron, Christ crucified. It was just, it doesn't make sense, right? Christ means power, it means prestige, it means honour, it means glory, it means the promised one. How can the wisdom of God mean Christ crucified? It's an oxymoron. That's why it was a stumbling block. They tripped up on it. They could not get past it in their reasoning. On the other hand, the Greeks or the Gentiles, they were looking for rationality. If there is a God... And then he had to tick the Greek philosophical uh, idea of a god, largely conditioned by philosophers such as Socrates and Plato with their theories of the absolute. And God had to at least identify as such. In other words, God had to meet the Greek expectations. But Jesus didn't. I mean, he was born in a cattle shelter in Bethlehem, raised in a rural hick town called Nazareth. That's like saying God came to earth and was raised in Gunnada. He worked an average job as a carpenter, a plumber today maybe, or a carpenter, I guess. Um, Rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's like a 1992 Hyundai sun-kissed, awkward green colour XL. (laughs) Was executed in one of the most humiliating ways possible on a cross. He didn't in any way meet their expectations of a God worth following. But as Paul himself discovered at the Areopagus, the Greeks weren't really interested in truth. They just wanted to debate competing ideas and human philosophies. And isn't that like many people today in the West? And as people who are defending Christianity, we need to be careful lest we throw our pearls to pigs. Lest we denigrate the message of the gospel through our arguing with people about the validity of it. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God, 
And the wisdom of God, again, Paul shows another contrast and irony here, just like he did back in verse 18. He who is a stumbling block to the Jews is saviour to the believing. He who is foolishness to the Greeks is the redeemer of the believing. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And all of this leads Paul to conclude that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Again, this is written from an unbeliever's perspective. Paul's playing on the words. He's not actually saying that God is foolish. He's not actually saying that God is weak. He's playing on the words to make the point that conversely, humanity is desperately weak and desperately foolish apart from the glorious gospel. Fourthly, the paradox of the cross, 26 to 29, these last two sections will be quick. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many were wise according to the flesh, not many, not, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. It's filled with paradoxes, isn't it? Wise, foolish, weak things, mighty things, things which are not, things which are. Paul is emphasising to the Corinthian church that it's not because of who they are that God has called them to himself. It's as if he's saying, Corinthians, have a reality check. You're just regular law-abiding citizens. Not many of you were of noble birth or social high class or of wisdom or of influence. You're just regular people. You're not saved because you tick some special salvation box. And isn't he right? I mean, today in church... The majority of us are just regular people. But when you think about it, Christianity isn't the type of belief where you can be the kingpin, that you can be your own end in and of yourself because the gospel squeezes that out of you. Remember again, Terry, Luke 18, talked to us about that, that rich man and he said, Jesus replied, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because when you're wealthy... It's so easy to rely on your own wealth and become self-assured and self-secure in it. That's not in any way a criticism of the rich. That's not saying you can't have money. All that is saying is that when you are wealthy, there is temptation to find your identity, meaning and security in your wealth. God's not against you having things. He's just against things having you. And that's kind of what Paul is getting at here. Those who are wise according to the flesh, those who are mighty, those who are noble, they can be so self-assured in their, in their philosophies or influence or social status or whatever it is that they don't see the need at all for redemption. And I mean, think about it. How many Christians are in Hollywood? Not many, maybe a handful. Again, it's not wrong to be a Christian in Hollywood. It's just that the nature of that profession and that environment means that it's very hard to be a Christian in that, in that context. I take my hat off to anyone in that environment who is a Christian. That's why I also feel kind of uncomfortable when you, like, again, away at this EasterCon, you, you have these big preachers from America come over and there's all these swooning people up the front. Like, can I get you to sign my book and autograph? And you kind of wonder what's going through their heads because they see themselves as just the mailman, you know? They're just, they just hand out the mail. They don't write it. But a lot of people you know, treat them like they're this Christian celebrity and you just got to wonder how uncomfortable they would feel. I've heard Johnny Piper talk about that a few times. 
Christianity is not the idea, not the, the, the type of worldview that you can make something in yourself because it inherently makes you humble because you realise you can't do it on your own. And did you notice again here, verse 27, this choosing? God chose the foolish things. God chose the weak things. God chose the lowly things. Why did God do all this choosing? Verse 29, so that no flesh should glory in his presence, so that no one can come there on that final day and say, look at me, I found the pearly gates. I navigated the narrow road through the valleys all by myself. You and I have nothing to boast about concerning our salvation because it is a God-given gracious gift. Salvation is a gift to us, Ephesians 2. And how appropriate is that, that God doesn't share his glory with anyone? It's his alone. And that's what Paul concludes the chapter with, the purpose of the cross, 31, 30 to 31. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who, because, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That As it is written, he who glorifies, let him glory in the Lord. Don't miss that this morning. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, condescended, came down to this earth, wrote himself into the script of human existence, went to the cross as a representative for all of the people of God, died a penal substitutionary atoning death. Penal means it was to pay a price. Substitutionary means it was to pay somebody else's price. Atoning means it, was, it satisfied the wrath on behalf of God Almighty. He went there to the cross. He bled out and died for all of humanity, becoming both just and our justifier for the one who has faith in Jesus, fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3.15, crushing the serpent's head, so that all of us here might have victory over death, hell, and the grave. Therefore, as it is written, if you're sitting down on one Sunday afternoon wanting to boast in anything, Boast in this, boast in the Lord, boast in what he has done for you. Let him who glories glory in the Lord. We cannot achieve this by ourselves, righteousness, holiness and redemption. Over and over and over again we see in this chapter how Paul wants to take captive every worldview, every competing philosophy, every ideology, every form of scholarship or science or whatever it is. He wants to take them captive, every worldview that elevates itself in arrogance against the gospel of Jesus Christ and decimate it. Because the ultimate purpose of all things is that we might glory in him. That was why Jesus died ultimately, was for the glory of God. The ultimate purpose of all things is that we might glorify God. So I'd submit to you this morning that there can be no higher calling on your life than to glorify God. Glorify him today by repenting and putting your faith in him if you haven't. Glorify him tomorrow and every day through your speech, through your mind, through the way you act and the things you do. And glorify him by sharing the logos of Christ crucified to anyone who's going to listen. And couple that always with truth and love. Let God get the glory out of your life so that you may experience the joy of knowing him in this life and in the one to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we just acknowledge that we are We are broken people, that we're in need of a saviour.
that all of our wisdom, our thoughts and uh, philosophies of life and whatever it is that gives us purpose ultimately fail to um, provide our greatest need and that is a solution to the sin problem that we all have, a solution to the problem that infects us, our relationships with others and of course and ultimately our relationship with you. So, Father, we ask this morning that we would um, be unashamed of this message, that we would seek to glorify you because of this message, that we would relentlessly share this message with those around us in truth and love so that you may get the glory out of us and through... Uh, other people coming to know you and doing likewise. Father, it's such an incredible thought that you decided in your wisdom to provide a, a very simple means of salvation, yet a very effective means, a very tragic means, and at the same time, a very glorious means by having your own son crucified in agony on the cross but glorified and exalted at the resurrection 